So uh, well, let's pray and we'll get into our text of Matthew chapter three. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew and, and uh, what is recorded here, Lord, concerning the life of Jesus and his teachings. And so, Father, we pray that through this part of the story today, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would guide us, you would challenge us, Lord, that ultimately you would draw us closer to yourself. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we, um, we ask you for help now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with an unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So today's passage is, is a really straightforward, clear-cut, sort of um, s- simple text. It's one, this is a story that many of us are familiar with. Um, in this story, sort of a couple subjects or themes sort of kind of percolate out of the text. Uh, the, the, the first and the, the greatest I think lesson or theme of this is this is where Jesus's earthly ministry is basically inaugurated. This is the beginning. Matthew's done a, a, a lot of lead in sort of to the Jewish reader, sort of authenticating that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he uh, fulfilled um, many prophecies that were spoken about the coming Messiah. He shows um, through his bloodline and through his um, adopted bloodline through Joseph, how he fulfills uh, both regally um, his messiahship, that he was entitled to the throne of Israel, and his bloodlines through Mary shows that he goes back also entitling him. Um, it's a, a powerful introduction, especially for the Jewish mind. And as we get to today's story, if you uh, things begin to kick off, Jesus shows up. Finally, we're, we're not going to read about him. We're going to be introduced to him. He's going to start speaking to us. If, if you have a red letter Bible, you get red letters for the first time in the New Testament. Uh, the red letters drive me crazy because from here on out, your pages are going to turn to red. I have nothing against the red letters. 
It's just hard to read when like it's like page after page after page of red letters. I do want to give a word of, a, of caution is the red letters are not more inspired than the black letters. All of these letters from Genesis to Revelation are inspired of by God. Um, the red letters are, are helpful for some people. They drive me crazy because once there's too many of them, it's too hard to read. Um, that has nothing to do with the text. Just, uh... But, but he, we're introduced to him. He comes on scene. Uh, the second thing that we learn is baptism. This word baptized or baptized in today's passage is talked about five times. In this whole chapter, the subject of baptism has been coming up sort of over and over and over again. Uh, being the third week, I finally am going to actually address baptism in our story. Um, how it, what is baptism? What's the deal with it? How does it apply to us? Uh, as we enter into verse 11, I want to give us a little bit of a backdrop. I'm, I'm jumping midstream right into the story. What's been happening up to this point? In chapter 3, John the Baptist is introduced. Uh, we know from Luke's writing that John the Baptist, will, and even in this writing, that he was, uh, he was prophesied that a forerunner would come in Malachi, that there would be one, a prophet, would come on scene to, to be a forerunner to the Messiah, that he would prepare the hearts of the nation, of the men and women, to receive the Messiah. And the way he prepared them was through this, this proclamation of repentance, preparing the way uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we can go to the next slide there. If, well, nobody's really sitting there. Thanks, Isaac, jumping up. Um, to the nation of Israel, today's story, we're going to see that Jesus is going to come from the northern region. There's the Sea of Galilee, but that whole region is known as the, the, the region of Galilee. Um, Jesus is going to make his way down some 60 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist, whose ministry is happening in this larger um, red circle known as the, the area of Judea. We see Jerusalem. We see the, the northern part of the Dead Sea. Uh, this is where John grew up. He um, would have been baptizing in the southern section of the Jordan River. Uh, I'll give you guys a little, if you want to go to that last slide, to show the barrenness of this land. This is basically from Qumran looking east to the Dead Sea. But it's desert, dry, nothingness out there. Don't think wilderness like Lake Tahoe is what comes to my mind. Um, you can go to the first slide. And John the Baptist is down there um, sort of looking freaky. He, um, he, he, he's wearing a, a, like an outer garment of, made of camel's hair, which is sort of nappy, coarse sort of hair. He has a, a belt around him. Uh, we know that he was given the Nazarite vow from birth. So he, w- one of the stipulations is he never cut his hair. So I have sort of a, a reggae dreadlocks looking guy with lots of hair, the camel's hair. We know that his diet, um, he didn't drink wine. He drank locust and wild honey. Years ago, like 15 years ago, I'll never, Dave back there was a, was a good role model or student for me to give a, 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 a a sort of a, a picture of what this looked like. I'd gone to the reptile store. I bought a whole bucket of crickets. I brought in some honey. And Dave, for the class, volunteered to, to uh, eat crickets and honey to show us what this would look like. It looked nasty. It was weird. And so he did it. I'm still thankful. So when I read the story, 
In my mind, I just have David over there munching on some crickets, spoons of honey, and just to kind of bring it to life. He was different. He challenged people. He called them out for their specific sins. They were responding. They were confessing their sins to him. He's baptizing them in the river. Uh, Josephus, in his historical writings, says that thousands upon thousands of people are responding. This isn't a small crowd. Huge people from all over Israel are responding to John the Baptist. They're confessing their sins. They're being baptized. They're they're getting their hearts right for the coming Messiah. In the midst of this, last week, John is baptizing people. He looks to the banks, and there on the banks are the two dominant groups within the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, They are two groups that traditionally, most times, hated one another. If you read the gospels, you'll almost begin to think that they were friends because they're, they're united against their common enemy, which was Christ. But these guys, the Pharisees, they, 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 they cast a broader net over who could be welcomed in, but they were the conservative ones. They, they viewed the whole old Testament from Matthew to Malachi as the word of God. They believed in miracles. They believed in a bodily resurrection. Um, they were the conservative group of the time. The Pharisee or the Sadducees, excuse me, they were sort of the uh, aristocrats, the, the, the wealthy, liberal, much smaller group as far as who was welcomed in. They, they were liberal in the sense that they did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They did not take the whole Old Testament as the word of God. They took the first five books of the Bible as the word of God. They typically were at war with one another between the Pharisees and Sadducees. However, they were the two controlling groups amongst uh, Judaism at the time. And so they hear of all these people coming down, going to John the Baptist to be baptized. They go down as they're going to be baptized. They had no intentions of being baptized. They were standing on the banks observing. John the Baptist looks up to the bank at them and he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, who, who gave you a heads up that you need to repent. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter two and Paul, the apostle, his testimony. He was a Pharisee. And as he reflected on his life during this time, he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He lists circumcised on the eighth day, a number of things. Then you get to, uh, to righteousness as found in the law. And he said, I was blameless. In the Old Testament, we, we can count 613 commands. I have no idea who counted them, but I know that every uh, theological work, when you start looking at how many laws are found in the Old Testament, there, it's 613. Everybody, it's just it's just known. I, so I'm going to take their word on it. But then you had all the religious leaders and they would on each law would give a whole bunch of different rules. So I don't know how many laws collectively a Pharisee had to abide by. But Paul, when he reflects on his life back then, he said, if you were to take me before a court of law on my righteousness, according to the law, I was blameless. I was without sin. I don't know anybody that would even begin to, to, to take on that sort of righteousness. But Paul says he was blameless. If he was to be on trial for the commands found in the scriptures, he was blameless. That's a bold, bold statement. 
And so these are the guys on the bank. And John starts challenging them. And as he's challenging them, this is where our story picks up in verse 11. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. So John describes his baptism, what he was doing. He was uh, there challenging people for their sin. People were confessing their sins. They were repenting. They were taking God's side in his condemnation against them for their actions. And then John was doing a a sort of a a ceremonial cleansing in the, the Jordan River. And now he contrasts his baptism from that of Jesus's baptism. He says, but he, that's Christ, the Messiah, who is coming after me, is mightier than I. He's greater, he's stronger, he's all-powerful, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. I'm not even worthy to stoop down to take off his shoes. So there's a huge contrast that, that John the Baptist is painting between himself and Jesus. So he's stronger. His worthiness is so much greater than John. John describes himself as just this voice in the wilderness proclaiming to repent. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says, I just baptized with water because of repentance, but it really doesn't do anything. But this guy that's coming, the Messiah who's coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. It's this beautiful picture that they were familiar with. Last year, early on, we did a study through Ruth. And there's that beautiful uh, picture after the harvest where Ruth goes out to the threshing floor. And uh, this image sort of comes to mind that after they harvested the wheat, what they would do is this big round, probably not concrete, but hard floor that was up elevated on a hillside. And as the evening set, uh, they would crush the wheat And then they would begin throwing the wheat up in the air and the evening breeze would carry away the light stuff, which is a shaft, and the usable grains, which were heavier, would fall to the ground and they would use this. And so there's this picture that John paints, kind of still addressing the Pharisees and scribes, that when he comes, his holiness, his righteousness, he's going to consume that which is unholy, that which is unpure. It's going to be burned away and and this separation of the believers, those who are right with God will remain. This is, a, 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 this is not a seeker-friendly message that John the Baptist is preaching, but it was a message that they and we need to hear. You know, 20 years ago, I, I don't really have access to myself back then. I can only go off today what I thought I would be like back then. But I've been this week sort of thinking if I could go back 20 years as my present day self and have a little interview with my old self, one of the things, well, I don't know what I'd say to me, but in light of this passage today, right now, what I would like to ask myself is, hey, Gunner, what's baptism all about? What can you tell me about baptism? Because I'm just kind of curious about what, because today I know a lot of stuff about baptism. Super lot of stuff because I went to school and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> but then I think that as a twenty years ago, I would have been twenty years old. I, I um, 
I think that I would have kind of responded. I'm like, you know, it's something that you do to babies. Um, I know you have to get dressed up to go to a baptism. And no- normally it's super boring and it's kind of a stuffy environment. And because I had a picture of me when I was baptized as a baby. Um, and then you kind of go to dinner afterwards. That, that, but, I, but the whole concept, I don't think at 20 years old I had ever seen or experienced or ever like an adult person who was a Christian be baptized by immersion as a responsibility. I just ne- it never at all, like I don't even think it was filed away in my brain anywhere. The, my only concept of baptism was it was something that you were, I guess you were supposed to do to babies, but I didn't really know why. I just knew that you were supposed to. And I knew that I had been, and so I had that box checked, so I was good to go. Kind of was, that's what I'm guessing my answer would be. And so today in this passage, baptize is mentioned five times throughout the New Testament. Baptism is mentioned a lot. Um, there are uh, five different sort of types of baptisms that I see within the New Testament. Um, don't freak out by this. Right in this very passage, we see three of them. Um, the, the Two of them, I think, are very important to us. Or maybe three of them, I think, are super important for us. Um, that's probably debatable. Um, the, the first one in this story that we see is John's baptism. He says that he baptizes with water, um, for repentance, that people confess their sins, he comes, he ceremonially dunks them, and uh, there's sort of this this picture of um, cleansing that comes through the inward action of repentance. Uh, the second one that we see in this, which we haven't looked at, which we will give greater detail to, is Jesus's baptism. We, we see in the story that Jesus came to be baptized by John. John is doing this baptism for repentance. Um, Jesus's baptism is, it was a once in a life, not even once, once in a historical event. Um, We cannot recreate this. Um, Jesus had no sin to repent of. Um, But he goes and he's baptized by John and some great things happen. We'll look at it in the future. So, So Jesus's baptism is sort of the second baptism that I see sort of in scriptures that's it's unique to itself. Um, the third baptism that I see in scriptures is the spirit baptism. This is, I believe, the most important baptism any human being could possibly, it probably is the most significant important event that could happen in anybody's life, period. Like not even just in the scope of 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 baptisms, but like in your life, the most important thing that could happen to you is that you be baptized by the spirit. I hope this gets your intention (laughs) because if you're baptized by the spirit, that means you're a Christian. If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter one, hold your place in Matthew. We'll go back, but we're going to go to Ephesians chapter one. And in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul writes his letter to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have believed. The first three chapters of Ephesians are super heavy with doctrine, with truth. 
verse 13 is like Christianity 101. This is the nuts and bolts. We need to understand this. If you consider yourself, if you are a Christian, you need to understand this. Verse 13 says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation. So he starts out by this term, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried for three days according to the scriptures. That he did this for you to make payment for your sin. That he rose again on, after the third day. He appeared to many people according to 1 Corinthians 15. And then he eventually ascended into heaven. So the gospel is your hearing that Jesus died for you. That he was your substitute on the cross to make payment for your sin. To, make, to satisfy the wrath of God that was really, that each of us deserved. But just knowing about this doesn't do anything. There are scholars, there are all sorts of highly educated people, there are uh, PhDs in Christian religion and universities around the world who can tell you all about the gospel, they can tell you all about Jesus, they can tell you all about what happened to him in the gospels. They have all of the knowledge, but they are not Christians. I'm not saying that there are not Christians amongst them, but the knowledge doesn't make them Christians. Paul goes on after hearing about this, verse 13, having also believed, belief, trusting upon. This is the sort of what makes somebody a Christian. After you've heard the gospel, you can either reject it or you can believe in it. And when you believe in it, at that moment, you become a Christian. (coughs) Excuse me. He goes on to say, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So this sealing of uh, the spirit is in a sense, in essence, God's giving sort of a good faith deposit uh, for our inheritance, for our uh, being saved. We're secure. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, It's his work that saves you, not your own. You did nothing to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Holding back. But if you are a Christian, at the moment of belief, the spirit of God comes within you. If you'll turn with me, kind of heading to the, the, where we started, uh, towards the front of the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, or Corinthians is a general, this is like the Jerry Springer church of the Bible. Like, they, they, they are an absolute, total, and complete mess. The, the things that were happening amongst their believers, it was, it was horrible. And yet, Paul refers to them as saints. Because they trusted in Christ, they have the Spirit within them. And as he's writing them in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, yet they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, And we 
we're all made to drink of one spirit. I read this. I still go back to my Bible college days. I didn't go to Bible college to learn to go into the ministry. I just I was a young Christian. I wanted to learn more and more about what did the Bible have to say. When I read this picture, I still can hear the chalk on the chalkboard from Dr. Hare. He had gone up there and it was like. (laughs) And he's an older guy. So he's like kind of shaking. And then he put two circles. And I forget what was in the one. Oh, he put Romans 5.12 in the first circle, which talks about being an Adam. And then he drew a little arrow from the one circle into the second circle. And he wrote 1 Corinthians 12.13. And he said, before you trusted in Christ, you were an Adam. You were a sinner separated from God expecting or his deserving bracing for whatever you're doing his wrath was coming towards you and then when you heard the gospel you believed and we're told here in verse 13 that through the spirit you're baptized you're transferred from that body of adam into the body of christ for we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And so you were transferred into the body of Christ. And if you read through the epistles, I don't know how many times it says it, but you'll see over and over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So now we're sinners in Christ. We have the spirit of God within us. I don't know when this happened to me. I'm a, I'm a total mess. Um, spiritually speaking from like, I don't have a clean, I don't have a clean uh, pink slip. Uh, I mean, God has it clean. I just don't know how it came about. I, I know that as a kid, I had a very Godward heart. I know going to, to the Catholic church growing up, I knew that there was always a crucifix with Jesus on there. I, I had a glimpse of what the gospel was, but there was no clarity and being raised in a very abusive home, I know that as a kid, there's like blurry memories of me sort of crying out to God and asking God for help. I could have been a Christian. I just don't know. And then as I go through my life and I sort of uh, kind of go back and forth, finally becoming a Christian or where or, or Christianity or the Spirit sort of took root in my heart is about 22 is where I can begin to say at that moment when I... Um, somewhere during those couple years when I accepted Christ, um, I was going to a very evangelistic church. So the gospel was presented every single Sunday and I accepted Christ every single Sunday for like two years. So I probably became a Christian about 75 times during those two years. I didn't know it was a one-time deal. So I could have become a Christian during that time or I could have been a Christian as as a younger person with no discipleship and no training and not knowing how to, to respond but somewhere in there, and when I get to heaven, I'll figure out the moment exactly when I became a Christian, which I'm pretty excited to discover that. But whatever that moment is that you believe, the scripture makes it clear that you were baptized in the spirit, that you became a child of God, that you are secure until the day of redemption. For me, nothing really happened. Nothing measurable happened. There was no great experience. I know some people who say when they became a Christian, it was like, a clean break from the past. They felt different. I think they're more in the minority. I'm not discrediting their testimony. 
But I think a lot of times that we become Christians and it's like you have to continue to study and grow and go, oh, wait, hey, I was baptized by the Spirit. Which then leads into the next baptism. Well, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to fast forward. So baptism by water. Baptism by water is what we most are, um, we're, this is what we're familiar with as Christians in our culture. When you think, oh, um, was I baptized? Yeah, you're thinking of going down, being dunked in the water and coming up. Um, the word baptism itself is a transliterization, that's a, I probably said it wrong, of a Greek word that is baptizo, which literally means to be submersed under water by immersion. It's the picture that we see all through the New Testament. Every single time that somebody was baptized, they were basically placed under water and then they were brought up from the water. Uh, Romans chapter 6, if you'll go there with me. Water baptism, the importance of water baptism is it paints a beautiful picture of the spirit baptism. Water baptism does not save you. Water baptism, I don't want to, it's, it's totally significant. So I want to be careful in, in minimizing it. But you're literally, you're just going underwater and then you come back up. And in some respects, it's really not that big of a deal. But on the other side of the coin, and it's an extremely big deal because to be baptized means that you're taking a step of obedience. You're publicly declaring what has happened to you previously in receiving the Spirit of God. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 4, he says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so water baptism is this picture. It's a symbol, like a wedding ring. Like I can take off my wedding ring. Am I still married? I don't even see Anna. I was looking for her to nod, so... (laughs) but I'm good. I'm still married. It's just a symbol of, of, of what's, what happened. Um, uh, when we made our vows, we became married. The wedding ring is just a symbol, which is a, a, a picture that shows the world what had happened back then. Um, water baptism, when we're baptized, we're doing it publicly. We are going underneath water, as he writes about, We're identifying our lives with Christ, which happens when we believed, right? When we believed in Jesus, we acknowledge that he died for us. And so these two kind of like overlap, and I don't want us to get confused. Water baptism is a picture of the true baptism, which is spirit baptism. And the spirit baptism is that which really saves you. And so by being water baptized, we're identifying with Christ. We're going underwater. We're placing our life with his death. When we come back up, it's this picture of sort of being like literally washed. It doesn't actually wash our sins, but the spirit cleanses us from our sin. His death was the propitiation, meaning the satisfaction of God's wrath that our sin required. And so it's, it's everything. And then the final baptism is the baptism by fire. Now, back in Matthew, um, 
hold your place in 1 Corinthians or stay close to Romans. But in Matthew chapter 3, when John is contrasting his baptism from Jesus' baptism, he says, I I, I baptize with water for repentance, but he's going to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Now there's... There's room for discussion on, on this baptism by fire. Um, in the immediate context, what we see is, is there's, this, there's this separation of peoples, um, kind of with the winnowing fork that basically those that don't believe, they'll be burned away. Those who, who believe will be gathered as his own who responded to him. Um, I see... Um, this baptism by fire, I think that it's best described if you'll go with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this church that had so many issues, um, Paul begins to explain to these believers who have trusted in Christ, who are saved by His grace, but their lives were a mess and great sins were happening. He begins to tell them about this future day, this day in which we will face judgment, this day that we all will look forward to, this day that we are moving toward should actually affect how we live today. And so he begins in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so this is my understanding. When I hear uh, the baptism of fire, what I imagine is sort of what this picture describes is that I one day will stand before the Lord when I die or I'm taken to heaven that I'll stand before him and this purifying fire uh, will either literally or this is, I don't, I'll be passed over. Uh, the, the, the bad stuff in my life will be done away with. It'll be passed over and anything that is good will remain. And this doesn't necessarily mean good works. We can have good works that really are bad intentions. So I have I have no idea. Maybe there was one thing in my life I did with a totally pure motive. And at the end of this process, at the end, there'll be like a little stone that plops down. It's like, hey, there's Gunner's one good work. It's like, all right. But if not, if when I go through and it's discovered that there was absolutely nothing that I did in my whole entire life that wasn't of pure motive, It'll all burn away. And this is, guys, this is a good thing. Because when we're with Christ, we don't want to have our sin and our stain and all of this stuff follow us into heaven. It doesn't say that I'll be burned up. If I've trusted in Christ, that's all I need. It says, uh, where is this at? Um, 
uh, verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so let's just say you've trusted in Christ and that's all you got right in your life. You're good. <laughs> You're secure in him. His work was worthy. And I, the, the image that comes to mind is it's a, it has a lot of foul language, but it's, I watched it when I was a kid, um, I'm, which I'm not endorsing that. When I, but the whole back to the future, that guy with all the hair, like there's one scene when he's like transported time and he comes out and he's like smoking. That's the image that comes to mind for me. Like, I think that's how I'm going to like enter into heaven. Like, whoa, I made it. <laughs> like, I made it <laughs> because of Christ. It's like because of him. It's not because of your works. And I think that that's what the baptism by fire is. It's this, this refining process, burning away, uh, getting rid of anything that's good or bad, getting rid of anything that's bad. Okay. Matthew chapter three, we can go back here. So John, as he's teaching to them, he contrasts his baptism, what he's doing, with the type of baptism that Jesus will be doing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. In verse 13, we read, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. So Jesus walked some 60 miles the word about John the Baptist had been spread. He knows that he is this sort of wild prophet challenging people for their sin. People are responding to him, confessing their sins, and being baptized in the Jordan River. And so in verse 13, we read this, that Jesus arrived from the Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John specifically to be baptized by him. And so there's some things that we need to, to sort of think through. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has no sin. There is absolutely nothing for him to confess. There is nothing for him to repent of. And yet he walks the 60 miles to go to this crazy prophet who people are confessing their sins to him and he's going to go into the river and be dunked by him. Something's different. And I, and I, I can't help but to see the, the, con, the, contra, the contrasting points, the polarization of these religious leaders who are on the shoreline who aren't going to be baptized because they have, they see no need to be baptized because they don't see anything that they need to repent of. Because according to Paul, they viewed themselves that according to the law, they were blameless. And yet Jesus, he is God. He's the, the, the Messiah, the promised one who shows up on scene. There's absolutely no need for him to be baptized. Yet he subjects himself to John the Baptist's baptism of repentance. I am. It's funny how God can kind of convict us about things and like keep it coming at times. Like I, I'm like, I, I laugh at myself early in my Christian life. Uh, you know, I started going to church at, at the Coast Vineyard in La Jolla. I was going on Tuesday nights. I went totally, um, the first six months, I went 
because my friend had asked me to go. I said I'd go once, but I kept going. But every time I went as a pastor would speak, I would be kind of in my mind having this debate with him about how he was wrong and how foolish he was. But somewhere over this six months, it turned from this debate to belief. And I, I was now growing and it was like, oh man, everybody's got a Bible here. So I ran down and bought the Bible, but it was a devotional. I messed up on buying the, what a, I didn't even know what a Bible was. And then I finally, like after I, I realized that one of the teachings, they say, hey, turn to whatever book in the Bible and I'm flipping through it. And I look at my friend, I'm like, what date are we on? Because it was like a through the year devotional for men. And I was like, he's like, what do you mean? What date? I'm like, he's like, I don't know. He's like, dude, that's a devotional. That's like a, like, uh. and so I bought a Bible. And so then my pride, I, I like suddenly, I didn't just go from being like antagonistic in my mind to the things that the pastor was saying. Now I was like trying to, to sort of to fast track because I wanted to sort of, you know, fit in and they're all a bunch of like Christians. And so I had to start like sort of playing the game. And so I want to say about 18 months went by and through that 18 months, the whole subject of baptism sort of kept coming up in my brain. And I had a big elaborate scheme I, I don't know that I can repeat it. Like, I mean, I don't know that I know it because it's like, I don't know what, but it made total sense back then. I knew that as a Christian, I was supposed to get baptized, but I had this picture of me as a child being baptized in the Catholic church. And so somehow I'm like, well, this counted. And because now I'm a believer. And so I'm just going to sort of imagination say, well, before I was baptized, I know I existed. So I'll just say that during that window of when I was like three weeks old, somewhere in there, I... It doesn't, I, I don't even know what my story was, but it made perfect sense at the time. And it was so justifiable. And then I met this girl, her name was Anna. We started talking and then she was like, kind of like throwing the yellow flag. <laughs> she, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. Like, why would I get, I've been a, like, I've been a Christian forever now. It's been like 18 months. Being baptized is for like, for the rookies. I'm beyond that. I'm past that. She was like relentless. But the thing that was holding me back was my pride because I'm like, getting baptized is for beginners. And now I've been in church forever and I'm growing, I'm doing stuff and I'm like, whatever. So then I'm on a dive. We're going out on a dive, San Diego Bay, like at 10 o'clock at night. And I like throw myself in the, the, the bay. My buddy's like, what happened to you? I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. I just baptized myself. Let's keep going. <laughs> then I told Anna and she's like, are you kidding me? So I'm like having this, like, we weren't married, but I really liked her. And so I'm trying to like, do everything but get baptized because that would take so much humility and I'd advance far enough. And then so I go run a marathon. It's August of 2001. I'm in Denver. I'm running a marathon. At mile 20, I basically collapsed because it was like so hot. Well, I didn't really call I saw a lady that had her sprinkler on in the front yard. I'm like, Five more miles are laying in her front yard. I'm laying in her front yard. And so I'm laying in this lady's front yard the whole time, this 20 miles, I'm like arguing with God over being baptized or not being baptized. I'm like, I was baptized as a kid. 
Leave, I'm like, I'm good. It counts. And I'm hearing all this stuff. Well, what about when I did it in the bay? It's like, gutter, come on. And so then I'm laying in the front yard and I'm like, all right, fine. I'll get baptized. I'll do it. Like, I, like I'll, I'll give in. I'll do it. And around this time, this guy, Buddy, shows up. Buddy was an older gentleman. He's like, hey, man, do you want the rest of my drink? Like, and I'm like, yeah, I'll take, I'll take it. I drink it. There was an after-dinner mint, those little hard red, like the candy cane-looking dinner mints. I ate it. My, I sort of, I'm like, let's go, man. So I ran the last five miles, and as we're jogging together, I mean, a guy gives me his dinner mint. I'm not going to ditch him on the, like, the ending. And, and, he, and I'm like, so, hey, what do you, like, Maybe he asked me, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a Navy SEAL. He's like, wait a minute, you're a Navy SEAL and you're passed out in somebody's front yard and I'm like a 60-year-old man. I'm like, well, I heard about this whole mile high thing, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And I'm like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a pastor. And I'm like, dude, I like have been having this tug war with God. Like, I think I need to get baptized. He's like, I'd be happy to baptize you. And so he's like, well, where are you staying? We were staying at the same hotel. And he's like, you know, Meet me at this time at the, at, the, at the hotel pool. I'm like, but there's going to be a bunch of people there. He's like, yeah, of course there's going to be people there. And so then he baptized me at this, wherever this hotel was in Colorado. And it was super embarrassing. There's all of these people. And he's like, hey, can I get everybody's attention here? <laughs> these aren't, it's not like a church event. These are like people. He's like, this guy's getting baptized. And so I want to get all your attention. And he baptized me. And so I'm reading this story and I'm thinking about my baptism and how arrogant I was that baptism has anything to do with pride or where you are in your spiritual journey. And then I look at Jesus contrasted with the Pharisees. If there was anybody that could be too proud to like be baptized, it would be Jesus. And Jesus didn't even like go show up at a Christian baptism. He's showing up at this baptism and this guy's calling out people's sins. Nobody knew who Jesus was at this time. And yet he, being humble, walks amongst the people that he wants to reach. And he identifies with us. And he goes through this baptism. It's beautiful. And I don't know if you have, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized following belief by immersion. Like what I see in all of the pages of the New Testament is baptism, water baptism always follows belief. And baptism, every case in the New Testament is by immersion. And so I'm not going to be the Holy Spirit by you, for you. But I know what I went through and I would, if you have trusted in Christ and you have not been baptized following your conversion by immersion, I would encourage you to spend some time with God and to really wrestle through why have you not been baptized. He'll do a far better job than I ever could. And I'm thankful for my step of finally doing an obedience because once you start obeying God, he starts opening up other doors. And it all begins with this attitude of humility and repentance and saying, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. It's the least we could do. And so Jesus comes to John and he says, I need to baptize you. And John, 
I don't know if this is humility or great clarity of what the situation was. But in verse 14, John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me. John's like, what are you talking? Like he'd already said he's not even worthy to take off his shoe. And now he's coming to be baptized by me. And, and he's like, if anybody needs to get dunked here, it's me. You need no baptism of repentance. And then Jesus, and I, well, I want to stop. I don't want to move on so quickly here. You see, what, the thing that jumped out at me about John is this like, I think that there's a lesson here. There's like, after you trust in Christ, you're sealed by the Spirit, you're saved by the Spirit. It's not by your own works, but then God's going to call you to step out and to serve Him somehow. And whatever he asks you to do, I can assure you that you're going to be afraid. You're going to be terrified. You're going to feel unworthy. You're going to feel unqualified. I don't feel competent teaching you guys the Bible. I don't feel competent when I get a call to go to the hospital. I don't feel competent for any of these things. It's not about our competency. It's not about our worthiness. It's about his enabling and his calling. And he's so gracious to call us into these things. And I look at John saying, are you kidding me? I'm not, who am I to baptize you? And Jesus answering in verse 15, he says, permitted at this time, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Can you imagine John baptizing the Messiah? Like beforehand he was apprehensive and then as he comes up, up above the water, The heavens crack open. This dove of the Spirit descends upon him. Uh, the Father speaks. Here we see the triunity of God. We see Jesus. We see the Spirit. We see the Father. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is like overwhelming. This one phrase, the, 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 when Jesus says to him, you need to baptize me because it's, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If you want to get a good chuckle in, this is where theologians are like totally, nobody, like, what is he talking about? There's nothing in the Old Testament that says uh, the Messiah must be baptized in the Jordan River in order to like kick off everything. Nobody, like, like what does Jesus mean that, that if I get baptized, like my being baptized by you, this is going to fulfill all righteousness? The, the best answer I saw was in the New American Commentary, and they say to fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms uh, part of the relationship of obedience to God. In so doing, Jesus identifies with and endorses John's ministry as divinely ordained, and his message is one that needs to be heeded. So he comes and he authenticates John the Baptist's prophetic ministry and what he's doing. He's baptized by him as he comes up. The heavens crack open and this great declaration, this um, authentication from heaven over who Jesus was and is. And Jesus's ministry is about to begin from this point. And it always fascinates me that the very first thing that we're going to be exposed to in Jesus's earthly ministry is his temptations, that he was tempted, that we have this Messiah, this God who has 
walked down to the Jordan River, has identified with sinners. He identifies with you and me while he is without sin, any struggle, any trial, any temptation, anything that you're going with, he gets it. He's there for you. He wants you to come to him. Today, we're going to take communion. And communion, first and foremost, it's for Christians. So if this is your home church or not, the, the one thing that matters is have you trusted in Christ? And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've believed in him for salvation, communion is for you. Communion is a time that we, we reflect personally, that we, it forces us to stop and to think and to examine our lives and to say, Lord, what areas am I holding back? Is my pride keeping me from, from fully stepping forward and following you? Is, is my pride keeping me from being baptized? Is my pride keeping me from serving in this capacity? Is my pride or what, what, what sin do I have in my life that is hindering my relationship with you? So communion is a time that forces us to examine our our insight, our thoughts, our motives, the areas in our life. It's an area that forces us to the cross because he paid it all. As we take the crackers, we take the juice, the cracker symbolizes his broken body that on the cross he took the wrath that was due us totally. There is no sin in your life that he did not pay for. You stand complete in him. There's hope in him. I think as we reflect on what Jesus did, there's also this call in 1 Corinthians 13, or 11 that there's this challenge that says that, is, that we're to proclaim his death as we take communion. Because the idea is that Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, there's going to be no more like proclamation. And so this is a reminder that we have received as Christians forgiveness, redemption, sanctification, that we've been restored not by our own works, but by his work. And there's a challenge for us. Who are your friends and neighbors that don't know Jesus? Who are your um, friends and neighbors, family members, co-workers, people that you don't like? Who is in your life that doesn't know Jesus? And I'm convinced that as we take communion, we're to pray, Lord, I don't know how they're going to be reached for Christ, but if you could use me, use me. And so we're going to take communion now. We're going to sing a couple songs. I'm going to get everything ready. I'm going to pray. Um, you can come up and receive the elements when you're ready. Then just take them back to your seat and just take them um, after you spend some time with God. So Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you. Lord, I thank you for... Um, the gospel of Matthew, and ultimately, Lord, we thank you for Christ. Father, I thank you that he um, humbled himself, that he came to earth as a man, that he lived out a perfect life, Lord, free of sin, that he humbled himself in a way that he would be able to identify with our weaknesses, with our sins, with our struggles. And so, Lord, we thank you that he did that for us. Fathers, we take communion. We, I ask that you would help me and each of us, Lord, to, to truly examine our hearts, Lord, to, Lord, if there's areas that we need to confess to you, if our pride is keeping us from doing certain things, 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to release these things to you, that we would lay them at the foot of the cross. Father, if we struggle with the security of our salvation, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to see what what these crackers represent, that you loved us so much that you died for us, that you took our sin upon your body, that it was sufficient for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to rest in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for um, your conquering death, for giving us life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a light to this lost world. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.